Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Hello and welcome. I'm your podcast host, Marie McMillan. I'm a nurse, a writer, and overall creative nerd. You can find all of my stuff at mariemcmillan.com. But today, today, we are discussing a special trending topic, respiratory therapy. I am surprised at how many people, both clinical and non-clinical alike, have no idea what respiratory therapy is, who respiratory therapists are, and what they do. There really aren't good examples in media or pop culture. I think in a few ER episodes, George Clooney can be heard yelling for respiratory as he bags an actor back to life, but I really couldn't find great examples. It's too bad because they are important members of the healthcare team, and too often they are ignored. Doctors get hoorah, nurses get hoorah, but man, the RTs sometimes don't get anything. So, I'm here to fix that. To use an analogy in the vein of Top Gun, if doctors are the commanders in the flight control tower and nurses are the pilots, then the RTs, the respiratory therapists, are the mechanics folding the parachutes into place. As in, they will save your ass. In the intensive care unit, I work closely with respiratory therapists. And many times, they introduce themselves to patients as the person is going to help them breathe. Pretty important and essential to life functions. Breathing, you really don't miss it until you can't do it. Luke, use the CPAP. (laughs) So let's get down to it and start with the basics. What is respiratory therapy? It is a division of pulmonary medicine that aims to improve lung function and treat respiratory illness with various therapies, including inhalation of oxygen and medications, ventilation and airway management, and pulmonary assessment and hygiene exercises. What do respiratory therapists or RTs do? In the hospital setting today, they deliver oxygen and breathing treatments via different devices, they manage ventilators or breathing machines, and they help people with coughing and airway clearance. They're the people that stick those breathing tools in your mouth after your surgery and say, okay, blow. They're the people who help you get out of the hospital. In outpatient settings, RTs might help with pulmonary function testing and help pulmonologists with patients who have chronic airway or lung problems. Why are they important? Aside from the obvious, you know, needing to breathe in order to live. As an ICU nurse, I literally couldn't do my job without respiratory therapists. My patients wouldn't be able to breathe without their help, and honestly, I would be kind of lost on the finer points of the ventilators. Many times, RTs recognize trouble before anyone else does. They do much more than just put an oxygen cannula on your face. What kind of areas do RTs work in? Pretty much everywhere. RTs work in emergency departments, pediatrics, neonatal, intensive care, med surge wards, outpatient settings, and in helicopters transporting patients. Stay tuned for more on flight medicine later in the episode. I wanted to take some time to talk about how this field has grown in the last 70 or so years. Much like the rest of modern medicine, the 20th century was a time of evolution. I got most of the following timeline from the American Association for Respiratory Care, aka the AARC, and they have a super cool virtual museum on their website at aarc.org, which I encourage you to check out. Lots of cool visuals, galleries, pictures of everything from iron lungs to all sorts of pulmonary, you know, torture tools that I'd never seen before. Okay, so getting back to it. In the 1920s, after the great influenza epidemic of 1918, physicians and medical professionals started noticing the benefits of oxygen therapy delivered via inhalation. 
Compressed gas cylinders were large and heavy, and early RTs were called tank jockeys, or oxygen orderlies, spending most of their time hauling equipment around. Dr. Edwin Levine is credited with the first formal training program at Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago in 1943. And also, in 1943, Dr. Albert Andrews, Jr. published the Manual of Oxygen Therapy Techniques, outlining the purpose and structure for a hospital-based inhalation therapy department, which I think is largely what the RT departments were called before. In 1946, Dr. Levine, along with nurses, doctors, and oxygen orderlies, came together to form the Inhalation Therapy Association, the ITA, which would eventually evolve into the AARC. The original association had 59 members. The 1950s saw more structure added to training programs, and more books on inhalation techniques were published. In 1952, Jonas Salk developed the first effective polio vaccine. For those of you who don't know, poliomyelitis in its severe forms can cause widespread neurological dysfunction in the body, losing the ability to feel, move, and even breathe. Large-scale vaccination programs virtually eradicated new cases of poliomyelitis in the U.S. And because of these efforts to cure polio, modern respiratory medicine saw the development of endotracheal intubation, tracheostomy, and favoring machines like newer positive pressure ventilators over older negative pressure ventilators, such as the iron lung. No doubt, the widespread use of iron lungs helped contribute to the evolution of respiratory therapy. There are loads of black and white photos of fields of iron lungs holding patients who couldn't breathe on their own. To give you some perspective, in 1959, there were 1,200 people using them to survive in the United States. By 2004, there were only 39. By 2014, there were only 10 people left living in an iron lung. In 1960, a registry of quote, inhalation therapists was created. Applicants had to pass standardized written and oral exams in order to receive the designation between 1960 and 1970. A little over 1,500 people received this title. In 1972, essentials of the job were outlined in a formal article, which included delivery of gas therapy, humidity, and aerosol therapies, intermittent positive pressure breathing, assistance with long-term artificial ventilation, administration of aerosolized medicines, and cleaning and maintenance of respiratory equipment, all things that RTs do today. In 1979, the oral exam was replaced with a simulation exam. In 1982, President Reagan declared the first Respiratory Care Week, and it is celebrated in October. This year, it'll be the third week of October 2018. Also in 1982, California was the first state to require licensure of RTs. In 1987, AARC members participated in nationwide surveys advocating for an airline smoking ban, and Congress subsequently banned smoking on flights of two hours duration or less. In 1989, a second survey led to a complete smoking ban on all domestic flights. RTs were pioneers also in the development of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR as we know it today. Every time that there's a code in the hospital or any time there's CPR going on, a respiratory therapist is there at the head of the bed helping the patient breathe. A little bit about respiratory equipment because it's a really cool topic. Respiratory equipment evolved considerably over the years as well. There is a respiratory therapist in New York named Felix Cusid. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. 
Anyway, he has a collection of antiquated RT equipment, and on the AARC website, there's photo galleries of all these items, including a suction device from 1880 that is still functional, and a, quote, Davidson pneumothorax apparatus, which is was, quote, used to induce pneumothorax in tuberculosis patients. Yes, intentionally causing a hole in a patient's lungs infected with an airborne toxin. Yeah, it was the 1930s. We didn't really know better at that point. (laughs) Images of these and more, including stethoscopes, ventilators from the 1980s, iron lungs, are all featured on this really awesome virtual museum. So listeners interested in seeing them, check out the show notes for the links to the websites. Nowadays, respiratory therapy is evolving faster as technology expands and changes in medicine are on a minute-by-minute basis. There are new ventilator innovations, such as the Volume Diffuse Respirator, or the VDR, and ECMO, Extracorporeal Membranous Oxygenation, which is basically an artificial lung machine that oxygenates blood outside the body and pumps it back in, similar to dialysis, but a lung machine instead of a kidney machine. Respiratory therapy has even invaded the realm of designer medicine. There are oxygen bars you can go to to inhale supplemental oxygen, sometimes flavored with scents to enhance the experience. I think I'm going to rue the day that a patient looks up for me with a non-rebreather on their mask and ask if I can, you know, flavor their oxygen for them. (laughs) Hashtag, it's a hospital, not a hotel. Additionally, professional sports have dipped into the supplemental oxygen use trend. NFL football teams now have oxygen at the sideline. Sometimes you can see the players huffing the oxygen masks on their face. Can you imagine being an RT for the Seattle Seahawks? That'd be kind of cool. (laughs) But is increased oxygen use a good thing? I'm not so sure. There are opinions out there about free radicals and cancer and, quote, too much oxygen. That's a topic for another day. And of course, adding to the topic of designer medicine, there is medicinal and recreational use of cannabis or marijuana, smoked or vaping, or even inhaled nebulization techniques. However, I think this is not designer medicine. This is very old naturopathic medicine. Things, it's something humans have been using for a very long time. And I think this is really going to be a part of medicine as it becomes more and more accepted by greater numbers of people. And as the U.S. federal ban on marijuana use eventually falls which is something I kind of feel like our commander in Cheeto, number 45, might actually be on board with. Who knows? What do you guys think? RT's out there. Let me know in the comments or email me. I'm curious what you think about the history and future of respiratory care and what memories you have from your professional lives helping people breathe. Sleeping is almost as important as breathing. Hey, listeners, I wanted to share a quick message from our podcast sponsor, Lux Pillow. Are you getting good quality sleep? No, you're not alone. One in three Americans suffer from poor sleep according to the CDC. So go check out Lux Pillow's products made with 3C technology, structure and support in one luxury pillow. Lux Pillow's goal is to help you fall asleep fast, feel better, and achieve more. Quit tossing and turning and get your best sleep ever with a Lux Pillow at luxpillow.com. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear the special coupon code for 10% off your purchase. Okay, now back to the show. And we're back now after this very perfunctory summary of respiratory therapy. I hope those of you out there who have never heard of respiratory therapy or seen a respiratory therapist in your lifetime have a bit better image of who and what they are and how integral to the healthcare system they continue to be. 
So, of course, I sought out some actual RTs to talk to because this podcast is not about me at the end of the day. This is an interview show. Holy incentive spirometry. I've talked too much already. This podcast is about you, healthcare providers, and your voices and your stories. So here is Chris Webb, a currently practicing respiratory therapist two years into his official RT career, an armed forces veteran, and a former trauma medic with a decade of healthcare experience. All right. I'm here with Chris Webb, a registered respiratory therapist who has agreed to be a guest on Head to Toe. Thanks and welcome, Chris. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Sure. So let's start off real basic. Can you describe for the layperson listener out there what respiratory therapy is and what exactly RTs do? Um, most people will see a respiratory therapist running around giving breathing treatments, checking lung functions and stuff like that. Um, but we're actually, we've reached a lot further into the world of medicine than that. Now uh, we run most of the life support in your ICU and critical care units. We've actually just started doing ECMO, which is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is a heart bypass machine. We've, we've punched really deep into the world of technical medicine. You know, now we're, we're reaching out into bettering the communities with these issues. You know, 50, 60 years ago, smoking was just a normal thing. And now we're starting to see the major impacts on what it is doing to a person's life in the end. So we push really, really, really hard now to promote um, safety and helping people have a more productive lifestyle. We cannot fix the damage that is done. However, we can make your life just a little bit better when it comes to living it. We're in the hospital. You see us. But until you can't breathe, you have no idea who we are. We're at every single code. We're at every single rapid response. We're you know, we're we're there. We're just in the shadows. So for those people listening out there who have never really heard of respiratory therapists before, because like you said, you're kind of in the shadows until until you're needed. Uh, what what kind of training is required for to be an RT? And, and wh what do you think is really awesome about being an RT? And how would you encourage someone interested in the medical field to, to pick that route? Well, as of right now, uh, I, I know for at least California, um, there's different guidelines and regulations you know across the country but for california alone you have to have an associate's degree it has to be in respiratory therapy from an accredited respiratory therapy school you have to pass the registered respiratory therapist testing you they do not accept a certified respiratory therapist anymore in the state of california you actually have to go become registered with the state the programs are, they're everywhere. I mean, you can find a respiratory program almost on any block right now. It makes it a little competitive to get, to get a job, you know, when there's an influx of patient, uh, people that are, that are now becoming licensed. You know, like I said, I enjoy being in the shadows. I enjoy not being known until your darkest time. You know, we, we give you the option to breathe. And when people lose that option, whether it's from a foreign body obstruction or a, you know, status asthmaticus, you know, a really bad asthma attack, you know, that's when we're remembered. It's very few and far between, but that's when it counts. You know, I, I do get the gratitude knowing that when we do a pulmonary rehab clinic and we're out with the community for a weekend you know, I might have actually touched two or three lives and bettered their, their existence for that week. So looking at your, your work in healthcare, Chris, are you able to pick out some tiny victories that keep you coming back and doing what you do? Every day. Every day. You know, we get 
we get pediatrics in and they're in the middle of croup or LTB or bronchiolitis or something like that, a few breathing treatments and a little bit of suctioning and just some pure old-fashioned love goes a long, long way. I've been invited to dinners at family's house after loved ones have passed away. You know, we've had stuff dropped off in our departments for our the, the level of care that we give. You know, every day it's a win. I lose some, I win some, but I'd honestly like to say to myself that we win more than we lose. We really do. I like it. We win more than we lose. That is a good sentiment. What is your advice for those out there thinking of pursuing a career in respiratory therapy? Stick with it. It has its days. It has its moments. You know, there's a lot of a lot of obstacles that we have in our way, but be part of your local respiratory care boards and your societies for respiratory care and all of that because the vote only happens if you if you're there and if you want to see us expand and be what we can be, you've got to put your heart into it. Just just keep pushing. I know a lot of these respiratory schools out here are very grueling. The one I went to was, ouch, it was rough. For two years, I did not know my family because I was either in school, in the hospital, or in a book. And that's with 10 years of experience before that. Just drive hard, push hard, and remember that if you ever look at your paycheck and decide that you're not making enough money, you need to leave because that's not why we do healthcare. We're not here to make money. We're here to change lives. Solid advice. Thank you, Chris Webb, for all of your insights on respiratory therapy and for being a guest on my nerdy healthcare podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Like many divisions of medicine, respiratory therapists can specialize. To cap off this topical episode, I talked with John Inkrot, a respiratory therapist and respiratory care educator with over 25 years of experience, currently working in flight medicine in Florida. And it totally sounds like I need a respiratory therapist during my interview with him. Apparently, I had a wicked cold Welcome, at the time. John Inkrot to Head to Toe. Thank you, Marie. Thank you for the platform, and thank you for having me. I think this is great. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of respiratory therapy that you do? Yes, and you know, it's very unique because I am a flight respiratory therapist in Orlando, Florida, and we are a unique program in that we are one of the very few in the United States that flies uh, strictly RTRN. And uh, for the most folks, uh, the configuration in this country is a medic and a nurse. We are unique because we do interfacility transports only. We don't do any scene calls or any trauma. Uh, we have some good friends across town at uh, another facility here that do great work doing that. But we pride ourselves in taking care of the sickest of the sick. Since 1985, when this program got started, they have flown an RTRN on their flights. And that's because the RTs here do a lot with balloon pumps. And we manage the balloon pumps. And back then, that was just the configuration that they used because we did a lot of cardiac patients in this town. And in our hospital in specific was a referral center for that. So uh, that's kind of how it got started. That's where it's been uh, for the past 33 years. And that's kind of the work that I do, kind of take care of the sickest of the sick. And as I say before, we are your best friend on your worst day. So I, I certainly enjoy that. You know, working in aviation, the one thing that we start all of our flights out with, we're sitting on the pad, we've got our rotor spinning. Uh, the first thing that we call off is sterile cockpit. And that's important because now we're focused on our checklist, we're focused on what we need to do as we get off the ground and we start getting uh, airborne. So I think that that's something that we can really take into the uh, medical practice side of it, is that, you know, here we are in this very, very uh, critical situation with somebody's life in our hands. 
And it would be prudent, I think, for somebody to call out, physician, you know, this is a sterile room or this is a sterile environment or, you know, now we know who's in charge. Now we know who's giving orders. You, you want the most conducive environment for folks to function at their highest level to take care of uh, the sick patient. Yeah, absolutely. I like that term sterile cockpit because it's like your universal protocol. It's your timeout. But you're, is that more for the, the flight safety when you're talking about a sterile cockpit? It is. And that's, you know, the most important phases of flight, whether you're in a helicopter or whether you're in an airliner or takeoff and landing. And so that is a very, very important time for the person in charge or for the crew members that are uh, with that uh, pilot and with the uh, uh, folks in the cockpit is that they, the folks that are, are flying the aircraft and certainly the crew that's involved need to be at their best and need to be, I don't want to say on guard, but they need to be at their highest functioning to think. You know, once aircraft get airborne, whether you're you know, you're in a major jetliner or even in a helicopter like we went to Miami today. Uh, you know, you can have a conversation about uh, we had a nurse that's orienting with us and it's a new nurse. So we were just talking about certain protocols and things. And that's a little bit of a different environment as opposed to when you're landing at Miami. Miami-Jackson is four miles to the uh, east of Miami International Airport. And so it's a very, very critical uh, area to be thinking at your highest on. So takeoff, landing, most important phases of flight and, and time to be silent and focus on your job. So you know, we put these patients' lives in our hands and they trust us. And they need to know that um, we will take care of them with, with the utmost safety and the utmost care that we would anyone. What makes providing healthcare above ground unique, other than the fact that it takes place on a helicopter or a fixed wing or a bigger aircraft? You know, it's the ultimate team approach because there's only two of you. And if you get into an ICU, even a med tele floor, and you've got five, six, 10, 12 people that are assisting you in these critical situations, or even, you know, intraoperatively in the OR, and you have this controlled environment, you know, we talk about going to the OR to do our intubation rotations and some of our checkoffs. And that's all great to look at your anatomy. But at the same time, is that the patient populace that you're going to experience? The NPO patient for 12 hours, the controlled environment, the paralytics, well, no, it's not. It's the patient that's vomiting after they ate Olive Garden with this massive MI, and they've got a malampati score of four, and you can't see their pharynx, and you know that patient that I'm talking about. So it is the ultimate team approach. There's two of you. Communication is the key. Knowing what your, what your partner wants and kind of being on that same level, because again, you get into these critical phases of flight, and you've got a coding patient. Uh, you kind of have this this vibe and this this telepathy with your partner that you kind of know what's coming next. So I think that's what makes it unique. What makes it different is that you have to have plan A, plan B, and plan C and know what you're going to do if, if one of those fails. I imagine, but in even tighter quarters, like you can't move it, around because there's no space. <laughs> you know, and, and right, we have people that come out and tour the aircraft and that's the first comment they make is that it's small. And our aircraft is the EC-145 and it's what I think is one of the larger aircraft in EMS when you look at some of the other ones that are, you know, in the operational theater. But that being said, it is a tiny quarters. It is cramped, and it's not an ICU room. So I work in a very typical inpatient critical care sort of setting, and um, a, a lot of the listeners out there are also, I think, hospital workers. You know, they're they're familiar with the, you know, waking up, getting their coffee ready, go, driving to the hospital, getting their assignment, doing their bedside shift report, and then spending the next 12 hours with their assignment and then handing off and then going going back home. Maybe um, for those of us who've never, you know, 
ever worked in a flight scenario, take us through what maybe a typical day might look like for you. So we would get to work at about 6 a.m. I'm on the East Coast, of course. So uh, 6 a.m. in the morning, and we kind of see what's going on in the way of weather. We kind of see what's going on with the night shift crew, and we get reports from them. And about 20 minutes after that, we end up at the aircraft, and then we go through all of our equipment. We go through our, our bags that we carry. We go through the medications that we carry. Um, and it's the same thing every day, but it's, you know, where some people can think it could be monotonous. And, and, you know, like you said, getting your coffee, going to work, getting your patients, spending 12 hours, and then going home. And that is what we do, but at the same time, they're, like, going back to the safety aspect of this, there's a lot that goes into you know, taking your time in the morning and, and pre-flighting your aircraft to make sure that it's in the best shape and to make sure that your equipment is all functioning. Uh, there's nothing worse, like I said, plan A, plan B, and plan C. If you don't have functioning equipment, all of those fail. So make sure that you have what you need to have to do your job. And then after that, we will have a briefing, a safety briefing in the morning with the pilot, the mechanic, our adult team, which I am a part of, our pediatric and our neonatal team. We will all be in the same quarters. We will talk to our dispatch, and then we will go into kind of the day's uh, briefing. So we will talk about areas of restricted airspace. Uh, we have the president who's down in uh, South uh, Florida now at this time. So today was uh, getting around some of those areas. Being medevac, you do carry a priority, but at the same time, you need to be cognizant of those FAA restricted areas. Go through some of that stuff, and uh, once that's complete, we have education that we do. We have patient follow-up with that we do. I stay uh, involved in a lot of extracurricular stuff and, and in presentations and stuff, so I have stuff that I can work on there. So there's a lot of things that we can do to uh, keep us busy. There are times, uh, just like anybody in, in healthcare, there are downtimes, and you welcome those times. Uh, and then there are days where you have four or five flights that are only spaced by like an hour's time. And those get, <laughs> those get very difficult. So, you know, especially in Florida in, in August, it can be a little bit uh, exhausting. But So that's our, our typical day. Let's say you come in the morning. Would you have perhaps scheduled flights like from days prior? Or do you, is it mostly just calls like, like any other ambulance radio? All of our calls are unscheduled. Uh, we don't do any sort of scheduled flights. So any call that we get, there are those that are more time sensitive than others. But, uh, you know, like I said before, you get those echo patients that have been in the facility for 10 days. And, uh, you know, those may be not so time sensitive as the STEMI or as the brain bleed. Um, those are a little bit more time sensitive than others. So we work 12-hour shifts, and I work day shift. So, yeah, there's no scheduled calls. It's, it's just like you said, it's kind of uh, any typical ambulance service. What is your advice to healthcare professionals out there interested in working in flight? You know, the experience is key. And we have a lot of folks that ask us that. The minimum is three to five years. The average experience on our team is about 16 and a half uh, when you take all of us and you kind of lump us into one uh, median score. But get get experience, ICU, ER. And the important thing is, is is having that, the know with all of that time sensitivity. You know, you can bring patients out of an ICU, or patients, I'm so sorry, you can bring folks out of an ICU, medical professionals out of an ICU, but they just don't understand some of the critical sensitive issues that emergency folks deal with. And so there's a, there's a lot that goes into that. So ER, ICU, advanced credentials, education, these are all very important and all things that programs look at. What? keeps you in critical care respiratory medicine? Oh, you know, it's my passion. It's, it's, I've never lost this. And I, I told my students, I'm like, this, you know, I, I have a, a fantastic job. And, and one of my nurse partners says, you have the best job in the world. And I think we do. And, 
if it went away tomorrow, I would still love going into the ICU. And I still do that from time to time. I'll work an extra shift in the ICU. It's just you, you can make this profession, you can make any profession the best it is, or you can make it the worst possible. And I think that that goes into what you put into it. And if you put into it and you invest in it, you will get an enormous return. And I've, I've done a lot of hard work for 25 years and I have reaped the benefits and I, I think this is a fantastic profession. I think medicine is a fantastic profession. And I think it's ever-changing. And I think you can see that too. You know that as a nurse. This is an ever-changing field from what it was 15 and 20 years ago, whether it's technology or whether it's, you know, the medical and the biochemical or the biophysical uh, advancements and, and things that we use every day. Uh, it's just getting more and more, you know, lifespans are getting longer and our, our interventions are getting better. So I, I can't wait to see what the next 10, 15, 20 years have in store for us. Absolutely. Mr. Ankrat, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed hearing about everything you had to say about your career and giving a little insight into flight medicine. And that about does it. Thank you so much for listening to today's Trending Topics episode. Also, healthcare workers out there listening, be sure to thank your respiratory therapist friends and colleagues the next time you see them. They are a big part of the healthcare system, and I hope this episode gives a bit more insight into who they are and what they do and why they're awesome. Thanks, guys, for helping me troubleshoot that beep on the ventilator, which I don't know what it is, for suctioning my patients, for helping me not freak out when I change a trach, all the all of the above. You, you make our lives easier. You help patients out. You're the best. Thank you, Chris and John, for being today's RT Guests of Honor. You can hear the extended, less edited, more fun interviews with both of them on my Patreon page. See the show notes for the links to that and the Virtual Respiratory History Museum at museum.aarc.org. As always, feel free to get in touch with me about show topics, guest suggestions, and feedback by emailing macmillanpages at gmail.com or leave a voicemail on the feedback line at 503-512-0185. Thank you to LuxPillow for being the sponsor of today's podcast. Visit LuxPillow.com to view products that will help you fall asleep faster, feel better, and achieve more so you can produce more podcasts or whatever it is that is your passion. Use the coupon code head to toe all one word, in your checkout to get 10% off. Thank you to Wesley Price and Poddington Bear for providing the music in today's show. Okay, guys, until next time, keep breathing.